Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When the black herds of the rain were grazing in the gap of the pure cold wind, and the watery hazes of the hazel brought her into my mind, I thought of the last honey by the water that no hive can find. Brightness was drenching through the branches when she wandered again, turning sliver out of dark grasses where the skylark had lain, and her voice coming softly over the meadow was the mist becoming rain. Father Brendan Kilcoyne, coming to you again from Athen Rye, the Brendan Option, courtesy of Immaculata Productions. And I just began there with one of my favourite poems, The Lost Heifer, a poem from the 1930s by the Irish poet Austin Clarke. And of course, in the poem, as you may know, the heifer is a metaphor for Ireland. He picks it from Irish legend and from the Jacobite tradition of coded references, poems that contain coded references, political references to Ireland. And without going into all of the images, the use of language is extremely beautiful and calls to mind Gerard Manley Hopkins on a few occasions there. And yet, it's kind of as if Ireland is eluding him. It's a very powerful image. Her voice coming softly over the meadow was the mist becoming rain. He can hear her and now he can't. She wanders in and out of the periphery of his consciousness. It's nearly impossible to pin her down. And I suppose he's asking, the poem's written in the 30s, he may be asking in the poem, you know, after the War of Independence, after the Civil War, after all the blood that was shed and the bitterness and the, the terror of the, of the guerrilla war, was Ireland achieved? Is this Ireland? Can you pin Ireland down into a nation state? into a constitution and, uh, and uh, a government and, uh, and the whole bit? And it's a very good question. I suppose the question I want to ask is, is it possible to, to catch this heifer? It's a very powerful image because the Irish from ancient times were cattle-owning people and a cattle-raiding people, a warrior people, whose greatest occupation or greatest pleasure was stealing other people's cattle. Cattle were a form of currency. Is it possible to catch the heifer? What does it mean to be Irish? What is an Irishman, an Irish woman? What's an Irish person? What makes you Irish? And you may well ask me, what's a Catholic priest doing talking about this? How can an Irish Catholic priest talk about anything else? When the government of Ireland, the polity of Ireland, is rapidly becoming entirely non-Christian, in a country that has been Christian for 1,500 years. I grew up with the assumption that to be Irish was more than likely to be Catholic, perhaps not Catholic, but certainly Protestant, and without question Christian. So where are we now? We have people of many faiths living here, and more to come in. What is it to be Irish? I'm told that the, the guards lately have been getting worried about the rise of right-wing nationalism. I think it's a sign of how laid back the Irish are that it hasn't happened sooner. It's very important, I think, that we now ask ourselves, what is it to be Irish? Because I've heard Catholics talk, I mentioned this in the last podcast, I've heard Catholics say they no longer feel they're Irish. 
the long, longer feel it's their country. You know Michael Collins, he used to tell a story. Now he died young, so when I say he used to tell a story, the poor man didn't, he didn't live to be old and tell many. Somebody asked him, what did he mean by patriotism? And he said that when he was a clerk in, in London as a young man, he was walking with a group of other lads down the Portobello Road, and they were very homesick. And he was tremendously missing home. And without warning, out of a side street, a donkey and cart came out with a man sitting on the cart guiding the donkey. It wasn't even in London a totally unknown thing at the time. It was very common in Ireland. And he said, without a word among them, they all stood around and cheered and clapped the bemused Englishman who was driving the cart because it was just the same kind of cart, just the same kind of donkey, and for that matter, just the same kind of men that you might have seen on any country road in Ireland at the time. And he said, well, that's what I mean by patriotism. So I suppose what he meant was that it was place and people. And what makes a nation? I don't know, I think it's a bit like the mystery of a stew. I love stews. Do you like stews? I, 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 am, I really love one-pot dinners. I'm a lazy man. I love soups and I love stews. The French are great masters of stews. For instance, the Bef Bourguignon is delicious red wine beef stew. And they would use the cheapest cuts of beef because it's cooked so slow at such a low heat that the meat just falls apart when you come back. It was the food of country people. They were going out, to the, not like in Ireland where your house was in the middle of your fields. They all lived together in a village, probably on a hilltop, and they were going out to the fields every day. So they put the dinner on in the morning as they were leaving, and it would be cooked in the coals when they came back. And red wine, remember, was as plentiful as water in these countries. A delicious red wine stew. And then you have coq au vin. It was a way of cooking a, a tough old cockerel. And they'd kill the cockerel and it'd be as tough as old boot leather. But they would cook it again for hours in red wine. And apparently the real coco van has a dash of the cockerel's blood in it. So there you are for some real French cooking. Stews are a mystery. It's like chemistry. What alters the taste? How do you balance the flavours? I put it to you that a nation is a stew. It's a bit like, as the French would say, a daube. It's one of those remarkable compounds or chemical mixtures of foods cooked at a certain heat over a long time. I think to be Irish, you have to be willing to stand in the rain for a long time. <laughs> I think that would come into it. I think you have to be able to stand a very small number of colours. Brown, a lot of grey and endless bloody green. I think to be Irish, you have to be able to stick that. And rain. And then bogs with, of course, rain. And bacon and cabbage. And need, need I say, rain. Tea and fresh brown bread and butter. And rain. I think it's a mixture of shared experiences of taste and touch and smell and sight that gradually form a nation. I've always thought that's why we drink so much. It never stops bloody raining. The northern peoples all drink hard. There are problems with alcohol right across the northern countries, and many of them would drink us under the table. We just have the name for it. 
I think there's a lot in that. I don't think you can go on about the Irish race. I agree with John Waters on this. I don't think you can go on. I agree with John Waters on nearly everything. I, I don't think you can go on about the Irish race. I mean, what's the Irish race, for God's sake? We're Celtic, we're Gaelic, we're part Norse, we're part English, we're part pretty much anyone passing in a boat. I've seen people in the west of Ireland who could have stepped off the pier in Cadiz. They look pure Spanish. How do we know how many bloods are mixed into us? Maybe we could do with more of a ten. We're all so pasty. I don't know. I, I do know you're on a hiding to nothing if you go on about race. So any incipient right-wing maniacs that are around, any little, as de Valera called them, some nincompoop, when Ono Duffy tried to march on Dublin with the blue shirts, he said, we knew with what was happening in Europe that some nincompoop would decide he had a divine commission to become a dictator. As I've always loved that column by de Valera. He wasn't having it. If there are any of them out there, good luck to them. Uh, I, I don't mean good luck to them politically, but good luck to them in, in trying to pin that down. Race. The most you can say is that we were all pretty much most of the time fairly white. That's about it, really. I think you're, you're closer with culture, and I'm going to get the face taken off me for saying this, but I'm going to say it. I honestly think that it is very hard to separate religion from it. If you have a country that's Christian for 1,500 years and the only major alterations in that are the type of Christianity that is practiced by some of them or some coming in who are of a different type of Christianity. I, no, no, that's going to be a major former of that people. Am I saying that Ireland has to stay entirely Christian? I'm not. Clearly it has decided not to. And so those of us who are have to decide, are we Irish? And I put it to you that it's still possible to be Irish. And furthermore, I put it to you that it is still possible to choose to be a 100% unredeemed Fenian, a complete and hopeless Irish Catholic, a beads-rattling, gaudy image-worshipping, strong-drink-consuming Irish Catholic. Okay? Um, the kind who go to the go to the pattern uh, for Crow Patrick and and attend mass devoutly and then bait everyone up and down the road afterwards with a feed of drink on them. Okay, I'm probably going to get murdered now by by the temperance people, but fair enough. I think it's a matter of a shared culture at every level, including and profoundly the spiritual, because a shared spirituality is a shared telos in the Greek sense, in the sense in which Aquinas would have meant it. It's a shared end. And the end informs all of what leads up to it. It informs the journey. So for instance, if I'm sitting here in Nathan Rye, and if I want to go to Galway, there are many ways in which I can go to Galway. I can go in on the motorway, I can go in the old road. I can go over through Hedford and Kong, and then on over to Galway circuitously and take in a bit of the lovely countryside. I could go another way and end up coming from the Clare side. There are a, a, quite a significant number of ways. I could really put myself out, and this is being completely ridiculous, and end up coming into Galway by sea, but it could be done. But I can't go from Athenry to Galway without leaving Athenry and ending up in Galway. 
that informs everything. Where I am and my end, where I intend to go. The shared telos, the shared end, that soaks into the culture that people create en route, on the pilgrimage. If you want to take a Chaucerian image, let's say, you know, with a, uh, the world and its mother, they're jogging along together on pilgrimage to make their pilgrimage, the knight and the squire and all the rest of it, the abbess, and you name it. Everyone there together. I think that's absolutely crucial. Now, we, we are in a position where a whole load of people in Ireland, or I mean a serious load of people, you look at the last referendum, right? That's very serious, because that's also some of our own people going to mass at the moment, have effectively apostatized. Now, it may not be apostasy in the technical sense. Let's put it this way, to, to borrow a phrase from Cormac McCarthy, is it, if it's not apostasy, it'll do until the real thing gets here. It'll keep us going. Looks very like it. Walks like it, talks like it, quacks like it. So what are we? We're, God, we're an awful crowd of freaks. We're, we're a bit like the, the Brits that were left behind in India. We're a bit like the legions left behind in Britain when the Romans pulled out. Not legions, but uh, the legions were pulled out, but various Romans and Romanized Britons. We're, we're kind of stranded here. We're like the Protestant community after independence. Not all of them, but a lot of them, who'd have identified very much with the English. Now, they didn't all identify with the English, and some of them were strong Republicans. I mean, we're, we're in a bind here. So we have to ask ourselves, as the Protestants had to ask themselves, and this is a real humiliation for us, no offence to the Protestants, but we felt very superior to them for a good chunk of time, because we felt, as was it Bishop Michael John Brown famously said, he said to the people of Clonfert uh, at a, a ceremony in Clonfert that he congratulated them. They had turned their landlord's house into their diocesan college. That was Garbley. And they had Garbley Park. That was the seat of the clan records, I think, originally, and then a boarding school, Catholic boarding school. And they had turned the dower house of the estate into the bishop's palace. That's Curry, out on the lake. It's the, to this day, the bishop's house. And Brown's comment was, the wheel has turned. And there was real triumphalism. There was a real sense, ha, you had us down, but now we have you down. And I'm sorry to say, you know, there was a quality, as Yeats bitterly pointed out a few times, of the beggar on horseback. We were well able to use the horsewhip when we got there. The same one that had been used on us. We didn't always distinguish ourselves or treat the Protestant community well. Let that be said. For goodness sake, one, one thing, if we're going to be Irish, the Irish were never a small people, although we are a small people, if you can figure that out. Okay, we're a very big people trapped in a small country. <laughs> we now have to learn a bit of humility and we have to look at how they survived, and they did. How did they survive? Now, a key element in their survival as a community was their religion. And a key element in the survival of their religion was their community. And the two played in and out of each other. I worked in one of their schools as a young man, and I taught in one of their schools as a young man for two happy years. And it was a great place to learn one's trade. I thought they were the finest people I had ever dealt with. I really thought the world of them. And I was fascinated by how that community was there under the radar, living a very rich life. 
but they, their boarding schools were key to it. I just want to make that point because we've just got rid of most of ours. I'll tell you something else we're going to need, and we, we effectively got rid of. Uh, it kept the French church going for 50 disastrous years, arguably helped to keep it going, or the scouting movement. And we lost the scouts, because we let our scouts amalgamate with another scouting movement, and now we have no scouting movement. Well, there's a scouting movement, but it's not Catholic, and it's rapidly shedding what's left of its Catholicism, I'm reliably told, by some very committed people who are disenchanted with it, who've put a lot into the scouts. We're asking crucial questions now is, are we Irish? What is it to be Irish? Are we Irish? We are Catholic, we're clear on that, but are we Irish? How do you be an Irish Catholic? Is it possible to do this? Is the game worth the candle? Is it going to be worth the effort? Or are we just inventing it? Is this a fiction we're inventing? I would put it to you that you're Irish if you want to be Irish. I think this is kind of like baptism by desire. I'd put it to you that if, if you really want to be Irish, you're well on the way to being Irish. You may not be juridically Irish, you may not be a citizen, you may not be de jure Irish, but you may already be de facto Irish. But it's not something that you can decide whimsically. It must be a decision to share the historical heritage of your people. Adopted people, if that's what they are and to embrace it, and then you can contribute to it, maybe even change it. And I put it to you that we should remain Irish, we, we Irish Catholics, we Catholics in Ireland. We should not be content with being Catholics in Ireland, as if we were simply diplomatic presence, or an expat community. All of humanity is an expat community, because we're not in the New Jerusalem and in heaven. But we shouldn't be an expat community here. We should be Irish Catholics. Just as I would say the Jews are Irish Jews, the Protestants, I know for a fact, are proud Irish Protestants. And they certainly don't see themselves as English. And are absolutely exasperated when you make the mistake of thinking that they're somehow English, as Irish Catholics used to. And I think we should defend that to the hill because it's absolutely crucial. Because I'm telling you, Human beings are, live in space and time. We're physical, we're of bone and blood and gristle and sinew. We live in a place, we have a history, we have a people. I remember burials when I was a boy. When people were buried, they were the maybe third, fourth, fifth generation to be buried in the same grave. The coffin would be let down and beside it would be put down the bags of bones and skulls of the people before him. And then the whole thing filled in during the rosary. John McGahern, the Irish writer, insisted on that in his will, that his grave, which it was, be filled in during the rosary in front of everyone and none of this bit of green grass. You know, the green plastic grass to make everyone feel, feel happier. It doesn't make you feel happier. You're better off to cry your eyes out. You have every reason to. Death is no small matter. I have, I don't know how many generations of my ancestors are buried in this soil. I'm Irish as far back on both sides as anyone can tell. We've clung to the side of the same rock and mayo for I don't know how long. Now, very good rock, very good rock. One of the better rocks. But you know what I'm getting at? And their unmarked graves are down there somewhere in that ancient graveyard, and it is ancient. There are carved stones in it going back to, to about the 7th, 6th century. 
ancient stones carved with Christian symbols. The stones were probably there before, pagan. And then the Christians carved on them. Now I'm telling you, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I'm not bloody going. I'm not bloody going. It's my country. I won't go. I'm too old anyway. I'll probably break something. I'm not going. I'm standing my ground. I'm going to be buried in this shallow earth of Mayo or Galway or wherever I drop. I'm going to push up some good Irish daisies. I'm not giving this up. You can bugger off and find your own corner. This isn't mine. I'll share it with you, but I'm, you're not putting me out of it. And I think Irish Catholics have to decide that and they have to be that bloody-minded about it. They have to be that thick, as we say in the west of Ireland, that, ooh, stubborn, bulldoggy, churchilly, determined, fight them on the beaches, fight them in the hedges, fight them on top of the hay shed, fight them wherever we find them, okay? We'll never give in, okay? You're going to take my bacon and cabbage out of my cold, dead hands. I realise I am borrowing very heavily in my metaphors here. <laughs> I think that was actually the National Rifle Association in America. But there you go. You take what you can get. And I'm, I'm calling to you out there, if you're an Irish Catholic, and you say, oh, oh, should I go? It's so unfriendly here. The Irish were always unfriendly. What the hell are you talking about? We always hated each other. Do you think this was invented? Do you think we started hating each other lately? Do you think they hate you just because you're a Catholic? They'd hate you anyway. They'd hate you because you're there. They hate you because you're their neighbour and they've followed the commandment. Hate thy neighbour. But they'd die for you if you were stuck. You know they would. They're your people. They've apostatized. They're still your people. So we're going to stay here and we're going to take the ultimate revenge on our compatriots who have abandoned the faith. We are going to really sicken them. We're going to stay here and we're going to pray for them. And that's when you're really nailed when an Irish person tells you, I'll pray for you. That's the knife well into your back. I'm only joking, by the way. I do mean we'll pray for them. And so I think we take the view here that we're like the monks on Skellig Rock. Do you remember I said before, they didn't go out to run from the world. They went out to face the demons in the wilderness, to face into the chaos and to pray for those behind them. We're going to stay here. We're going to, this isn't white martyrdom and it's not red martyrdom because the Irish never do that. They always kill you slowly, very, very slowly. Okay, you won't get anything dramatic. The English did that. They loved the public execution. The Irish, no, it'll be one cut a year, forever. No, we stay here and we endure, what will I call it? Yes, I have it, I have it, I have it. Grey martyrdom. So Irish. It's neither one, nor the other, nor this, nor that, nor before, nor behind. But it's martyrdom. You'll know it when you're in it. Grey martyrdom. We stay here. Irish Catholics, and we pray for those around us. And we pray for our country. Once we are clear on that, we know what we're at. And everyone is welcome. If you're one of the so-called new Irish, if you've just come into the country, you're a Catholic, and you're in the process of this becoming Irish, wanting to be Irish, 
I absolutely beg you to do that with your faith as well and don't maintain an artificial separation between the two. What are we going to do? There's no tougher crowd than the Irish. If you've just come into the country, I want to tell you, the British Empire foundered on this rock. It's as hard as nails. And we are going to carve our name, the cross of Christ, on that rock, as the monks did before us. We are going to carve on hard and unforgiving stone. Now, if the Irish are tough, our, the chisel of our faith will be tougher. And we are going to carve crosses all over this country. Chesterton once said that he didn't know for the life of him why the English regarded the Irish as impractical and silly. He said, it's strange, he said, for a people who are supposed to be such impractical dreamers, the Irish are particularly good at the trades of iron, soldiering, politics, law, the priesthood, the professions where the stakes are high and where failure is failure indeed. The price for it can be very, very high. Remember you're Irish too. And if you're a Catholic and you're finding the Irish people hard and unresponsive, you're just as tough. You're of the same stock. And the chances are if you've decided you want to be Irish, you're spiritually of the same stock or you wouldn't want to be. So don't dodge that. Let other people carve in butter if they want. Let them carve in soft and malleable substances. We'll carve on pure granite. And so how to do this? Well, the first thing I'm going to say to you, and again, I am repeating myself, we can't do this on our own. The Irish soul is great material to work, but it's hard. We'll need to work together. We'll need to support each other. We'll need to be together. We'll need to know each other. We'll need to be able to contact each other and draw strength from each other's faith. To work this stuff, as a tailor would say, which may be the hardest stuff you can work, but the best, you will need skill and perseverance. And I don't see how you can go it alone. We don't need one tailor on his own, we need a shop. We need to be working together. What are we trying to produce? Now you keep something in mind here because there's a major spiritual danger. When you oppose something long enough, you can come to be like it. It seeps into your soul if you're not careful, because you have had to make so close a study of it in order to fend it off or even beat it, that even having beaten it, you may discover it awakes again within you. It has crossed into you. Yeats put it brilliantly, too long a sacrifice makes a stone of the heart. In doing penance and prayer, in converting to the faith, you can become a devil. Harsh, cruel and unforgiving. We have no wish to turn out a family of spiritual Spartans. Spartans were famously great soldiers, famously sullen, famously cruel, famously vindictive. No. The Irish adore storytelling. Now, I think people all over the world do, but I think we are one of the peoples who have a particular love of it. We love storytelling. You can silence any company in Ireland with a half-decent story. I think Tolkien has told a story that we will draw strength from for another hundred years at least. And, and I think what he did in creating that world of Middle-earth was 
to draw on the peculiar romance of the Middle Ages, before the, the, the Renaissance, when tremendous things were accomplished in a time of faith. And if you look at it, his modern imitator, although I don't think he'd like to be called that, George R.R. R. Martin in Game of Thrones, has done exactly the same thing. How many computer games, how many stories, how many movies, how many films, how much fictional literature draws on the Middle Ages? Just check it for yourself. It's like the vampire stories. They used to have a saying, children with rickets scratch lime from the walls. In the old days, rickets was a disease of the bones. I think a lack of calcium. But they used to say that a child with rickets, you see them scratching the walls without knowing why they were doing it. It was the body trying to find what it was missing. They say that the calves being reared for veal who are starved of iron to keep the, the meat white for the fancy restaurants, you see them frantically licking the bars of their cages, again not knowing what they're doing. I wonder if we're not at the same thing as a society. All this vampire stuff, what's that but immortality? What's that but the endless old legends of cheating death? All the superhero stuff, the success of Game of Thrones, the success of the Lord of the Rings films, which passed into legend even as they came out. People are starved in the modern world. They are starved in this grey martyrdom that the modern world keeps them in. Endlessly telling them they're brilliant and they're gifted and they're unique, and endlessly controlling them, like battery hens, as we're increasingly doing with our children in school, and never letting them be the heroes that they're being told they are. We're giving them an appetite, and then very carefully feeding them a, a sort of pap, a pasteurized version of heroism and nobility, a telos that is so watered down but yet it does retain some distinctive traces of the original Christian inspiration. I'm put to you that we're looking at a society that is starved not for food, not for comfort, not for safety. It is starved for adventure, for nobility, for spiritual adventure, for bravery, for daring, for acts of courage. It yearns for the limitless horizon of the ancient romantic epics. To cross, in Homer's term, to cross the wine-dark sea. We are a nation which has learned computer science and all the rest of it. And its greatest aspiration is that one son would be a doctor. Often without only a limited understanding of the, the tremendous heroism involved in being any good at that ancient profession. But I wonder whether at heart we don't long to go cattle raiding and fighting after patterns and engage in single combat and save maidens from dragons. No. I think that's in us the whole time. And I think it's a yearning for heaven. It's a yearning to be ourselves completely in sync with God with the Creator, whom Tolkien didn't even name in that story. And yet Catholics lick the print of the page of the books. The young Christians, not just Catholics, cannot get enough of Tolkien. 
and he said himself that the work was Catholic from beginning to end, especially, he said, in the revisions, because he himself was a devout Catholic. And his friend Lewis, C.S. Lewis, the Narnia stories, enduringly popular, was a devout, a devout Belfast Protestant, devout Anglican. No, not Spartan, sullen and cruel. Listen to me, what we have to build here is the Shire. What we have to build here is a lovely little ghettoine. And we will have to be very hard in order that we can be soft. You need an army to make sure there's peace. You need to be tough in order to make sure that the gentle will be protected. We need a Shire. But the Shire, as Tolkien points out, must be earned. It must be defended. It's not Eden. It's not an effortless innocence. On this side of the grave, if you build the Shire, it must be paid for. And indeed, the kingdom isn't effortless. It's just effortless on our part, because the kingdom is paid for in the blood of God. And I say that straight out, I think, theologically. It's perfectly fair to say it, although it's a slightly unusual way to put it. We usually say the blood of Christ. But sure, let's cut to the chase here. We're talking about the blood of God. We're talking about the incarnate God tortured to death for our sake. That is the price of the Shire. That is the price of the kingdom. That is the price of the New Jerusalem. Of the land of kindness and sweetness and love and affection. I love a phrase Waters said. I know I go on about him, but honestly, I think John Waters, I, I, I think he's, my God, he, he is such an underused and underrealized asset to our country. And certainly a great asset to our church. If only we'd listen to him, you know. A man who can talk about Greek philosophy and talk about rock and roll in the same breath and discuss one in the light of the other. A guy like that you have to have around. I mean, he's handy on every level. And Waters, I think I'm quoting him properly, I think. He said about Elvis that Elvis's great gift was that he simply was a master of affection. He had a tremendous gift for expressing affection in his songs. Not lust. Waters doesn't go into this detail. I'm, I'm, I'm dissecting it a bit. Because I know he's not talking about that. I listen to it. Not lust. Although there's lust there inevitably. But not lust. Not even passion. Passion flares and it dies. But affection. Warmth. Love. Which is so often misunderstood. If you want that to reign, if you want the kingdom, if you want the shire, if you want the ghettoing, right, the parish, the village, whatever it is, if that's what you want, it will come dear. But you can afford it. You may not know it, but you can afford it. Because you're as tough as any of them. You're of the same stock. And if they think they're tough, they should know that you're tough. It's the same crowd. Now, I think here, we have to have that blend, which you don't often find in the modern personality. But I think it's a feature of the great artists. I think it's a feature of the great poets, the great sculptors and painters. I think it's a feature of the great warriors, great statesmen. And I think it is certainly and profoundly a feature of the great priests and religious, the prophets. It's a strange blend of fierceness. Fierceness from the Latin ferox. Wild, savage, fierce with gentleness, both mixed together. Malcolm X once said that coffee and cream were the only thing he liked integrated. It was a famous quip from a very witty man. He had a dark wit, a sardonic wit, born of, of a tough youth. Fierce and gentle, you mightn't think of them as mixing, 
stirring them like cream into coffee. Let me tell you, they go well together. I mean, try ice cream with custard. Go on, don't say you haven't. It's gorgeous. If you haven't, you have to. Dollop of ice cream into the middle of hot custard. Let it melt a little. Fierceness and gentleness make up a remarkable personality. And that's what we need to be forming in our young. To be fierce in defending the weak. Fierce in defending their families. Fierce in defending the faith. Fierce in defending their beloved country, their homeland. The dear and familiar place in which they live their faith and worship God. Where they have built altars to God. Where they have dug the graves of their loved ones. Fierce in defending it and gentle in loving it. That blend. That is, Pierce would agree on this. I think Arnold would have agreed that is the aim of education is to produce the gentleman or the lady. The aim of education is to produce the one who reconciles those two things, beauty and the beast, the fierce and the gentle. Those things that are reconciled when the lion lies down with the lamb, when the swords are beaten into plowshares, it is reconciled in this steady, penetrating, terrifying, loving gaze of Christ that is captured so beautifully in the old icons of the Eastern Church. That loving ferocity. And that's what we have to educate. Hitler wanted to take German youth and bring them up as young wolves. Huh? Young wolves. What a thing to do. What a thing to do to children. I would like to take Irish youth, and I think Pierce would agree with me here, i take Irish youth and bring them up as young warriors of love and kindness. Both warriors and lovers. Now we are going to have to permit me again, but a cracked record can only do one thing and that's keep playing the same old tune. We are going to have to think education. We're going to have to think how we do this. If we want to keep our kids in the mainstream schools, how do we do that? Develop parallel education. I'm telling you, I would feel much better if I was seeing some scouting movements start to emerge here. We need an alternative way of raising the youth of our own community. And if anyone says to us, but who are you? We'll answer, we're Irish. I'm an Irishman, an Irishwoman. And what do you believe? I'm an Irish Catholic. I believe in God as an Irishman, as an Irishwoman. I found God here in this country. I worship my God in this country. I will bury my parents in this country. My children, my descendants will bury me in this country, in this ground. I'm Irish. And what's your future, Robin? My future is, is a new and hopefully better again version of my past. I listen to the voices of the dead. I have joined them, whether I was born into it or I have chosen to be part of it and was drawn to it. By desire, I have joined this community and I listen to the voices of the dead who are here before me, to the tradition, to those talking to us. And so I ask you now, to start thinking practically how we can work out in detail bringing up this remarkable generation that we have to educate. And they will be more Irish, as was said about the Normans, than the Irish themselves. Nobody will be able to say to an Irish Catholic that they're not loyal Irish men and women. They won't be able to say it because we'll have proved it in a thousand ways. We'll be to the fore in everything. We'll be in there in everything. Just like the Jews. No fair-minded person could have said to the Jewish communities in countries in the past, what are you contributing? When they were to the fore in so many things. And then they were blamed for being to the fore. If you really have something to contribute, you should be able to see it. 
and we will contribute. One of my favourite stories I draw to an end, Archbishop Mannix, great Irishman, great patriot, Archbishop of Melbourne, legendary of Archbishop of Melbourne. He must have been Archbishop of Melbourne for at least 40 years, maybe 50. Very long time. And Mannix, he was the absolute scourge of the British establishment in Australia because he, he was a strong Irish patriot. He wasn't always now, but he came around to, the, to that view. But on one occasion, there was a serious question raised about the loyalty of Irish men, particularly because Mannix opposed the draft in Australia successfully. He said that you should volunteer, but he wanted only volunteers. He thought it was ignoble. He opposed it as the Irish bishops opposed it. And it was said that Irish Catholics were not loyal Australians. So what did Mannix do? I think it was a leading Catholic businessman organised this. For the St. Patrick's Day Parade, he was brought to review the parade in Melbourne in an open carriage, as was the custom, and he was surrounded on both sides by a large party of uniformed Australian soldiers riding white horses. They were all Catholic winners of the Victoria Cross, the highest decoration for bravery in the British Army. Question answered, discussion over. That was the end of it. <laughs> Point was made. Don't talk to us about loyalty. We've paid for it in our blood. We're building this country. And in the same way I said that, we stay here, we pray here, we die here, we are buried here, the fight goes on. We haven't found that heifer yet, but the evening is still there, the light hasn't faded, we'll keep searching. We can hear her faintly on the breeze, we can occasionally catch a glimpse, but we'll find her. What is Ireland? Where is Ireland? Who is Irish? Well, we're Irish, and we're not about to change. St. Brendan, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.